this new year, as we enter the season of Epiphany and um, seemingly are, are barreling very quickly towards Lent, we want to take some time here at St. Paul's um, to consider our roots, to consider and shore up our foundations, to be reminded of who we are as the people of God. Because when you gaze on the landscape, um, the Maybe the near horizon and, and perhaps even the far one as well. Oh, there's a ladybug on me. That's good luck, right? Um, is that what they say? Something about a ladybug? Yeah, sorry. That was distracting. As we look out into the future and gaze on the horizon, it might seem that we have an uncertain journey before us as a parish, as a diocese, or more generally even as a global church navigating an increasingly pluralistic and secular world. Indeed, this journey is quite uncertain in many, many ways. However, I suggest to you that in most ways, when we look carefully, in most ways, We can recognize that this uncertain path has already been trod by the saints of old, and that this uncertain future has already been secured in Christ Jesus. I remember one of our men's hikes several years ago now. We were hiking on a wide, fairly easy trail. It was an old logging road. We were enjoying good conversation. Good prayer time together, good fellowship, and the the trail took a nice turn downhill. It was lovely. And we hiked on probably another mile or two downhill before we realized that we had lost the blazes. We had lost the markings on the trees that were, were telling us that we were going in the right direction. And so we hiked back up the hill, not quite as pleasant as it was before. Looking for paint on a tree on the side of a trail. And there at the top of the hill, we found it. A double blaze. Two markings. Pay close attention. The trail is turning. And we looked. And sure enough, there was a trail. It was a meager trail, downtrodden, impossible to notice. Some of our team had even seen the blazes, but thought there could not possibly be a path through those woods. It was an uncertain trail. But as we began down that path, we saw that it was a trail that had been trod before, a trail that was marked, a trail that gave us assurance of our destination. In some ways, the book of Acts can be for us like that trail. It might seem foreign, it might seem unfamiliar, and it certainly will seem impractical at times, but it's the trail of the saints of the church, marked by the power of the Holy Spirit and assured by the faithfulness of Christ, and it's a trail to which we must turn in a season of uncertainty. And so we'll turn our attention these next five weeks to perhaps the most uncertain time of all, at least for the church, here in the book of Acts, 
And we'll see the path trod by the church in its infancy. A church that's facing persecution, theological dispute, pluralistic society, lack of worldly power. This is the church that we must aspire to. And so we'll begin our task this morning in Acts chapter 1. As you all know very well, I really like it when you follow along. And so I encourage you to pull out your Bibles, um, whether it's on your phone or a tablet or you, if you brought a Bible with you. Anyway, um, please follow along. We're in Acts chapter 1. And what we're going to see is that the early church, this church in the book of Acts, and also the church for today, can be framed in three things. A divine purpose, a clear mission, and an unshakable assurance. Purpose, mission, and assurance. That's what we will see as we dive into the book of Acts for the next five weeks. First, a divine purpose. Um, Acts was written by Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, And this is the second part of the same story. Luke followed Paul on many of his missionary journeys. As we um, get deeper into Acts, we'll we'll start to see he's writing himself into the story. And he's using um, first-person pronouns like we did this and we did that. He was there. And he has set out to give an orderly account He's interviewed many witnesses. He has tracked down all the details of Jesus' life. And he wants to give an orderly account, and he addresses it to this person named Theophilus. Now, this could be a real person who has come to know God and and wants to know the, the history and the story of Jesus and the Christians. Or it could be a general person. He, he could be writing as if he was writing to a real person, but, but really he's writing in general to the church. Because Theophilus very literally means in Greek, friend of God. Friend of God. And so whoever he's writing to, it's clear he's writing at least to friends of God. Which could be a real person named Theophilus, but it most certainly includes us, friends of God. And so the first part of his work, the Gospel of Luke, recounts the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the book of Acts, the second part of his book, recounts the life of the early church. And so what we want to note here in verse 1, at the very beginning of this book, is the purpose of the church. Look at this, it's really interesting. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now it's interesting that he says he dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that these things are continuing. But here's the catch. In about 11 verses, Jesus is leaving the scene. He's ascending into heaven. In his body on earth, there's nothing else that Jesus does and teaches in the book of Acts. And so what we see is that the beginning of Jesus' teaching is continued by the church. That's the purpose. That we would continue what Jesus began. And so it begins with these apostles. And it continues down through the ages. The people of God, constituted by the Holy Spirit, continue the work of Christ in proclaiming the kingdom. 
Now, to be clear, our work is different than Jesus. We are not saviors. We will not give our lives for the restoration of the world. We will not die for the forgiveness of other people's sins. However, we have a clear purpose. To continue the work of Christ by proclaiming his kingdom. We also have a clear mission. If we are to continue this work of Christ and the proclamation of the kingdom, the mission shows us how we're supposed to do it what, it, what it looks like. It gives shape and definition to the purpose. In his final words to the disciples before the ascension, Jesus lays out a vision for how the church is to make this proclamation. Now, we have to read it carefully because there's, there's two parts to this vision. Um, the first part is that the disciples have to realize that the proclamation of the kingdom of God is not to establish an earthly kingdom with geographic boundaries and theocratic governance. That's what the disciples are asking about here in verse 6. Let's look at this. When they come together, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you make us a nation again? Will you give us borders and a king? Will you make us a, a, a nation that is constituted by, by, by a theocracy, by a, a religious government? Will you make us that kind of nation, kind of like we were in the Old Testament? And Jesus says, no, not yet. Not yet. If you read verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the disciples are asking, are you going to throw out this evil Roman government and make us our own nation again? And Jesus says, no, now is not the time. To be sure, Christ will reign on earth as king again. It won't be a tiny little nation on the Mediterranean Sea. It'll be over all of creation, heaven and earth. Christ will reign on earth. In fact, he is reigning now, but not in fullness. One day he will return, but not yet. Now is not the time. And so we see that the mission of the church is not to establish itself politically, the mission of the church is not to establish a Christian nation. The mission of the church is not to be established with earthly and political power. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel across borders. And the power of the church is given through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. You will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The power given to the church is not through political authority, it's not through religious freedom, it's not through a Christianized society. Power comes from the Holy Spirit. And it comes into a church that is seemingly powerless. 
a church that is poor, a church that is not influential, a church that is outcast and unimportant. These are the people, that is the type of church that receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And unless we are willing to recognize that in our lives, our poorness of spirit and our powerlessness, except for God alone, unless we can recognize that, we cannot know the fullness of the power of the Spirit. And this power is given for the proclamation of the gospel, to bring the message of the kingdom, to bring the message of Jesus across geopolitical, across socioeconomic, across racial, and across prejudicial borders, to bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to bring the gospel to Somerville and to South Carolina, to New England perhaps, to Iran, to China, to Haiti, to Africa, to the ends of the earth. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, you are my witnesses. You will do this by being my witnesses, by sharing what you've experienced of me. We bring the gospel to the world by sharing what we've experienced of Christ, sharing his forgiveness, sharing his mercy, not just with our words, but how we forgive and show mercy to others. To share that we have been a people remade. We are a new creation, and we are a joyful fellowship of the people of God. And so we have our mission to bear witness to the gospel with the power that comes solely from the Holy Spirit. We have a purpose, we have a mission, and finally we have an unshakable assurance. Think about this for a second. Can you imagine the disciples hearing this message and what were they thinking? What could they possibly be thinking? Here's Jesus telling them to, to do the impossible or the unthinkable. What, Jesus, you want me to go to Samaria? Are you sure? You want me to go there? You want me to get killed? If we start proclaiming you as king and savior, don't you know that we're going we're gonna to be crucified just like you were? Can you imagine what they're thinking when, when Jesus gives them this message? And then what does he do? He leaves, right? They're standing there, and he ascends into heaven. He's gone. He says, do this, I'm out of here. What were they thinking? Certainly they were scared. Certainly they were unsure. Certainly they didn't possibly know what the future could hold for them. But God does not leave them wondering in awe. He interprets them for them. He sends two angels. Look at uh, verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Um, so this sort of white robes, the, the, the dazzling white robes, this is a symbol of these, these being two angels that were sent by God. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? You can insert a parenthetical aside. Don't you have work to do? Why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who is taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This Jesus has been, ascend, has been brought up into heaven and he's coming back. He will return. Now, if you were a first century Jew, you would know your Old Testament inside and out. And you would know what that meant. That Jesus, that Christ, the Messiah, has ascended into heaven. And what does he do when he gets there? He sits down at the right hand of God. The place of authority and power and dominion. It's an unshakable assurance that the Christ who saved us from sin, who was raised from the dead, is ascended to the right hand of God and ruling and reigning over creation, even if it seems like he might not be sometimes. He is there, he is ruling, and he is coming back. This is an unshakable assurance about the reign of Christ over the whole creation. That in the midst of persecution, in the midst of powerlessness, in the midst of ridicule, Christ is reigning and he will return to earth once and for all. And then injustice and sin and evil will be judged. God's people will be vindicated. And Christ will reign in his fullness and finality with us on this earth. That means we can partake in this mission without fear. Without even the fear of death itself. Because Christ, God's Son who is for us, who died for us, who was risen from the dead, is reigning over heaven and earth, and he's coming back to judge the world. And this, friends, is good and assuring news. We have purpose, we have a mission, we have an assurance. These are ours. They're not just the disciples. They're not just the early churches. They're ours through Christ. As I think back to that path, as we gazed on it and thought, this cannot possibly be the way. And yet we took it. We looked on a seemingly uncertain path. And we walked down it. And it brought us to our destination. Which, by the way, was not nearly as comfortable and fun as heaven. It was a tent and a patch of poison ivy. But anyhow, that's another story. But friends, we have a path before us that we cannot walk in fear. We must walk it with courage and conviction. It's a path that is defined by our purpose to continue the proclamation of Christ. There's a journey that will be guided by the mission to bring the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. And it ends in a destination that is assured by the ascended Christ. It might be uncertain. It might be scary. It might lead us by a cliff and we're clinging on for dear life. But Christ is reigning. Christ will return. And his gospel will be made known.